welcome to this episode of the EMJ Health Podcast. My name is Sue Saville, former medical correspondent at Britain's ITV News, now an independent health journalist. Today, I'm pleased to be bringing you a discussion sponsored by Pfizer through a medical education grant on gene therapy in haemophilia, ASH Congress highlights. The burden of haemophilia globally is estimated to be some 400,000 people with haemophilia B less common than type A. The prevention and treatment of bleeding episodes can severely impact an individual's quality of life. And while gene therapy for haemophilia has been on the horizon for more than two decades now, there's been little progress. Well, that is until now, as innovative therapies are being assessed and approved. Well, for the latest updates on these exciting developments, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Pipe, MD, who is Professor of Pediatrics and Professor of Pathology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, USA. He's the Medical Director of the Pediatric Haemophilia and Coagulation Disorders Program and has been actively involved in clinical trials with novel therapeutics for haemophilia, including gene therapy. Also with us is Radek Kazmarek, who is an Assistant Research Professor for Pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, in the USA, um, who likes to study the immune responses for gene and protein replacements for haemophilia A and B. Welcome to you both. Welcome. We're happy to be here. Pleasure to be here, Sue. Thank you. So let's get going. Let's start with perhaps um, Steve, if I may be so informal with you both, um, if you wouldn't mind telling us to start with about the, the current burden of haemophilia in terms of the numbers, the geographical prevalence and, and treatment regimes. Sure. You mentioned at the top that uh, there's an estimate about 400,000 individuals with haemophilia worldwide. Um, uh, we can estimate that about half of those are going to be severe, which is the main topic of, of today's uh um, discussion. However, that's actually an underestimate of what we think the true uh, incidence of hemophilia should be globally. Uh, it's probably closer to about 750,000 uh, globally. And what that tells us is that we're um, having challenges in diagnosing patients, um, most likely in uh, low income and low uh, middle income countries. Uh, as well as we're seeing some uh, survival disadvantage for those who likely have severe disease. So from a um, you know, first priority, uh, we still are not dealing with the needs on a global basis, uh, particularly those with severe disease. Uh, those who do get identified with severe hemophilia, however, um, hopefully they have access to uh, treatment products. And globally, this takes the form of factor replacement therapies, uh, either factor eight for hemophilia A or factor nine for hemophilia B. Uh, the treatment burden, though, is challenging. Um, we know that if we don't intervene with a prophylactic therapy with these agents, then uh, patients are subject to uh, severe bleeding risk, primarily into joints, which is the hallmark bleeding in hemophilia. And repeated bleeding in the joint sets up a, a pathology of uh, joint destruction over uh, years and decades, and ultimately uh, crippling joint disease later in life. So the, the thrust globally is to move as many patients as possible to some form of prophylaxis. Um, since the factor replacement products we have are, um, are infusion-based products, 
this sets up a real treatment burden for patients. Um, they have to dose these uh, drugs frequently. They require IV accesses. Um, the biggest innovation I would say in the last uh, five, six years in, in my care of patients has the development of the first non-factor therapy, which is a um, monoclonal bispecific antibody called emicizumab, which substitutes for factor eight. This has substantially changed the treatment paradigm for patients with hemophilia A. But for hemophilia B, which is uh, part of our discussion today, we at this point still do not have uh, access to a non-factor therapy. So patients are still reliant on these IV infusions, um, adding to the burden of their overall care. And as you describe the the burden there, having these infusions, um, the efforts so far to replace those in, injections um, have focused on gene therapy. But now we're hearing about a, a new generation of gene therapies. What what's what do these involve? What's exciting here? Yeah. So the concept with gene therapy is that um, uh, if you can replace the defective gene uh, in a patient with hemophilia A or B and allow their own body. Um, to manufacture the factor eight or factor nine protein, then you can um, you, you're no longer going to need those regular IV infusions, and that's what we've been working on, as you indicated at the top. You know, over several decades, trying to get to this point. Uh, I think what Radic and I can share is that we have been able to deliver that now with with current gene therapies, uh, but there's still a number of questions um, uh, as to uh, whether the efficacy is where it needs to be and whether we've crossed all the uh, challenges related to some of the safety issues. Um, so maybe before we talk about the um, some of the novelty that was presented at the ASH Congress, I, I'd, I'd like to hear from Rod Radic what his thoughts are about the current state of affairs with gene therapy and particularly the most recent approvement, approval, which we heard just before the ASH meeting, uh, which was this drug called Hemogenics. Yes, Radic, over to you. Uh, thanks, Steve. Thanks for those uh... Great introduction. Um, I, I think it is important to understand that um, the uh, hemophilia community has had this perennial desire for a cure, a, a dream which began to take shape in 1982 and 1984 when, when the genes encoding blood coagulation factors uh, 9 uh, and 8 uh, were cloned respectively. Uh, this was really when the gene therapy field was born, and it has since advanced in fits and starts, uh, but it has continued to, to pursue a cure despite major improvements in standard therapy along the way that Steve described. Um, uh, because only gene therapy could provide a, a sustained protection from bleeding and uh, free the patients from the need for any additional hemostatic treatment whatsoever. That's the ultimate ambition. And that potential uh, became tangible in 2010s when gene therapies for hemophilia A and B uh, for the first time uh, normalized blood clotting in some individuals. Um, but the several years of follow-up to date have, um, I would say, disabused us of the notion that these therapies are the end game, the ultimate cures that we have been awaiting. Uh, the first regulatory approvals granted last year were major milestones and uh, really a, a testament to, to, to the importance of research and innovation. Uh, but there are multiple limitations and unknowns around the, the, the safety and efficacy pointing to uh, really a major uh, uh, gaps in our fundamental biological understanding of gene transfer um, in humans. So at the ASH Congress, the American Society of Hematology, what then was excited about the results that were reported? Well, we got some updates on uh, several programs that are giving us some longer-term readouts uh, from gene therapy for both uh, 
uh, hemophilia A as well as hemophilia B. Um, now, the platform that has been um, most advanced um, uses a, an adeno-associated viral vector system to deliver a copy of either the factor eight or the factor nine gene to the liver. And uh, with that uh, delivery mechanism, we are seeing uh, that we can get um, meaningful plasma levels of expression of factor eight and factor nine. And we're seeing pretty good correlation between the factor levels that are achieved and the degree of bleed protection as, as you would expect. And so as patients get closer and closer to the non-hemophilic range of, uh, of factor levels, uh, their bleeding essentially uh, goes to zero. And th this, of course, is the, the goal with this type of uh, treatment is a single treatment event that would achieve, you know, long lasting efficacious protection from bleeding. Um, but what I think the community is looking to see from the longer term results is, well, how long is this protection uh, uh, going to exist? And we did get some readouts from, from uh, the ASH meeting uh, where some of the early programs, particularly for hemophilia B, are giving the kind of long-lasting, durable expression of factor line and bleed protection that we were looking for. Uh, where I think the data is still lacking is there's still a lot of variability. So we don't have an ability to sort of guarantee an outcome for a patient. The spread of uh, levels of expression are quite broad um, with patients at, you know, barely um, minimally effective levels, um, you know, in the single digits of expression of factor nine and, and, and factor eight. And then we have others who've been able to achieve in the, in the normal or, or, or near normal range. And so I think that becomes a challenge when we're talking about presenting this to a patient in a, in a commercial setting. Uh, when you can't really guarantee what kind of outcome a patient's going to achieve. So as Steve's saying there, then we need more long-term data on this for knowing whether there is durable hemostatic protection. So Radek, what, what about your reaction to some of the results? So what do you think this could herald for the future? Well, it's really uh, great to see uh, the innovation that's, that's still uh, coming in the future. Uh, at ASH. Uh, again, the current wave of, of AAV gene therapies is a major milestone in, in our pursuit of a cure. Uh, they have def definitely have, uh, proven the potential, but they have many imperfections, as, as uh, we discussed. And uh, some may be overcome by further optimizing vector design and using transgenes encoding uh, by a better, uh, if you will, or bioengineered versions of factor 8 or factor 9. This has already improved factor 9 gene therapies, all of which now uh, use the Padua variant of factor 9, which is a hyperactive form of factor 9. Uh, and this may prove very important for factor 8 gene therapies down the line, which are faced with unique challenges of the factor 8 biosynthesis uh, and factor 8 encoding AAV vectorology. Um, because unlike factor 9, uh, factor 8 is primarily produced by the liver, sinusoidal endothelial cells, not by hepatocytes. Um, and yet AEV vectors encoding factor 8 target hepatocytes, and thus factor 8 transgene expression is ectopic. Um, now, factor 8 is a large and complex uh, glycoprotein, and it's notoriously difficult to express in heterologous cells, uh, even compared to other similarly sized and uh, structured proteins. Um, so perhaps we ask too much of hepatocytes when making them uh, produce factor 8, which normally they don't do. 
and uh, new generations of AAV gene therapy for hemophilia um, will use improved factor eight variants. Um, uh, that will be one of the innovations for sure. That will be uh, they will be easier to make ectopically, uh, typically due to improved secretion. Uh, porcine factor eight has long been known for much better secretion uh, than human factor eight, uh, which led to development of uh, factor eight EP3 variant. It's a hybrid human pig factor eight variant, the sequence of which is 9% porcine. Um, and clinical studies uh, administering AAV or lentiviral vectors encoding EP3 are about to begin or have uh, already started for lentiviral vectors actually. Uh, several amino acid substitutions have been shown to improve uh, uh, factor eight secretion. Steve actually has done some critical work in this area some years ago. And uh, multiple uh, preclinical studies in animal models are, are testing those molecules and they show promise. And then some imperfections of the current wave of gene therapies are inherent in the technology. And we may need alternative gene transfer systems to overcome them. Uh, several such alternatives are being tested, uh, mostly in preclinical studies. Uh, some still use AAV or a combination of viral and uh, non-viral vectors in the form of lipid nanoparticles. Um, some combine genome integration with transgene delivery by AAV or use a different viral vector. Uh, and some are fully non-viral. Um, lentiviral gene therapy studies have uh, already dosed uh, first patients. As I mentioned, they collect hematopoietic stem cells from participants, uh, transduce them with lentiviral vectors encoding factor eight, and infuse them back to the patients where they go onto home into bone marrow and generate uh, megakaryocytes or monocytes expressing factor eight. Uh, they promise better durability compared to AAV, but they do involve aggressive conditioning to make room for transduced stem cells. And that aspect um, needs work before they can become attractive alternatives for intravenously delivered viral vectors. And, and Radek, and, uh, with, with yeah, the yeah. trials that are ongoing, um, what else are you looking for? Are there perhaps some patient-specific factors that could predict the transgene expression? Uh, well, um, there is a lot we still need to learn, Sue, in, in general about the uh, the current way of, of uh, the current state of the art. Um, um, again, AAV plat the AAV platform has proven itself as a powerful platform for therapeutic gene transfer, as evidenced by almost 150 clinical trials registered to date. Uh, but the vast majority of them failed, and only uh, three systemic AAV gene therapies have been approved to date, two of which were licensed last year for hemophilia A and B. Which goes to show that AAV gene therapy is still a work in progress with, with plenty of room for improvement. Um, uh, unknown toxicities, inconsistent reliability, uh, no therapeutic index, high variability, and uncertain durability. Um, we really have many problems to solve still. Uh, AAV transduction and, and transgene expression uh, engage the host immune system, uh, cellular DNA processing, transcription, and translation machineries in ways that have only been uh, uh, cursorily studied uh, in the clinic. We still don't understand much about the causes of myotoxicities in the, in the form of uh, liver enzyme elevations. Um, the wide expression variability and decline of factor eight levels in the case of hemophilia A. Um, some expression variability is to be expected due to the mechanism of gene therapy, because we need to understand that biosynthesis of transgenic proteins upon gene transfer uh, follows a long series of variable events and biological interactions between the vector and the host. And successful transduction requires that the vector reaches the target cell, enters the cytoplasm, travels to the nucleus, enters it, and releases the genetic payload, which then undergoes a complex reassembly to permit transcription and, and uh, synthesis of transgene product. 
which then goes through multiple maturation steps uh, before it exits the cell to perform its, its function. And so, each of these steps may depend on, on individual sets of genetic and environmental factors. Some of them might be amenable to modulation. Um, and, and suffice to say that there is large variation of endogenously produced factor eight levels both within and between individuals with moderate and mild hemophilia A carrying the same factor eight mutations. At least 17 genes determine individual factor eight levels. Uh, so this is not something we can solve easily going back to your, your question. Gosh, it certainly is complex. Um, with these AAVs, then, Steve, if you've got pre-existing adeno-associated virus neutralizing antibodies, NABs, um, do they affect the efficacy of the novel gene therapy for the expression of, of factor nine? Well, that was the dogma, actually, um, since the very beginning of AAV, that um, uh, it, because AV are also naturally occurring viruses, we encounter these very early in childhood, actually. And so by the time adults are ready to receive vector versions of AAV, there's at least a significant chance that they already have antibodies that potentially would um, recognize these vectors and neutralize their ability to transduce the liver. And so since the very beginning, we have been screening patients for neutralizing antibodies, and we've for the vast majority of trials, they have not been offered gene therapy if they have a titer above uh, certain thresholds. And this was based on you know, pretty good um, preclinical data that suggested that these would affect uh, the ability to transduce the liver. But we have some interesting data that came from uh, the um, Tranidas uh, trial for, for hemophilia B. Um, this uses an AAV5. Um, to deliver uh, a Padawa version of factor nine. And initially in their early phase one study uh, with this vector, they were um, using a, um, a specific assay to measure for neutralizing antibodies and they were uh, screening patients out. But subsequently they developed a more sensitive uh, neutralizing antibody. And when they back tested the patients who had received their early phase product, they learned that there were several patients who actually had pretty good expression of factor nine, even though they had titers in this new assay that was above the, the threshold cutoff. So we did a, a, a small trial with three individuals using this AV5 vector and the Padua uh, factor nine. We treated three gentlemen, all of whom had uh, pre-existing antibodies to AV5. And they all had very good expression, normal to, to near normal levels, and have continued to do so now for well beyond three years. So that emboldened the investigators and the sponsor in the phase three trial to include all comers, regardless of their neutralizing antibody status. Now, as it turns out, there were 54 individuals in what was called the HOPE-B study uh, with Atranides. And um, one patient, um, did not get a full dose of the vector because of a, uh, an infusion reaction. He only got 10% of the dose. He did not respond to the therapy. And another patient um, uh, did have a very high uh, neutralizing antibody titer, and he also did not uh, express factor nine. But of the other 52 uh, participants, uh, roughly 40% of them had neutralizing antibodies by this functional NAB assay. And uh, in the analysis that was presented at the ASH meeting, there was really no evidence that the neutralizing antibodies significantly altered 
the ultimate expression of factor nine in these individuals. So this really, um, I think, gave hope for people that at least for this vector and maybe for some other vectors that might be developed, um, there could be you know, opportunity to continue to dose patients even when they have uh, neutralizing antibody positivity. Um, other uh, groups are now reviewing alternative protocols uh, and either with the AV5 vector, um, they are pursuing you know, additional trials with patients who have initially low uh, titers of neutralizing antibody to see if they get expression. And then if those actually turn out uh, to be promising, they might continue to raise the threshold. So I, I think this story is still evolving. Um, I, I don't know that the dogma has changed completely. I think still most people would prefer to dose patients who don't have neutralizing antibodies. But when you have almost half of the patients who, who are going to test this way, you don't want to exclude uh, so many patients if they could benefit from this treatment. So I think we're going to have to wait for additional data. It could be vector specific, um, but it's possible that we can have some other strategies to try to overcome these NABs. I, it's fascinating to hear the detail from you both. Um, but briefly, could I ask you in a sort of summary, um, Radek, if I may, as somebody who is not only a, a research scientist yourself, but has haemophilia, how excited are you by these latest developments? I, I am as excited as ever. Uh, you know, there is a tremendous difference in the quality of life and, and life expectancy, uh, expectancy between no access to therapy, access to somewhat effective but suboptimal therapy, uh, and access to, to state-of-the-art therapy. Um, uh, really, the progress to date has boiled down to closing the gap between how much hemostatic correction a therapy can provide and how much is needed to live a life independent of treatment. And this is one of the reasons why gene therapy has, has remained so, so attractive. And that's why we are still pursuing this goal. Um, and I think we're as closer than ever. So I, I am excited. I have experienced a lot of the progress on my own skin. So um, uh, we are in the midst of a molecular revolution. You certainly, as they say, have skin in the game in this one. I do have skin in the game, yes. <laughs> and, and Steve, very briefly then, looking to the future, very briefly, do you feel that it's exciting that on the horizon one day there will be something that is truly effective here? Well, I, I think we do have the platform that can produce a durable um, functional cure for patients, uh, at least for, for hemophilia B. Um, you know, we saw at this meeting um, now uh, several groups um, uh, where using the AV platform with Padawa version of Factor Nine that you can get long-term expression. Now, what's long-term? Um, well, uh, we saw from uh, one of the Pfizer programs, you know, more than uh, essentially five years of, of follow-up um, after uh, hemophilia B therapy. Uh, showing continued uh, durable expression of uh, factor nine. Um, we ha now have up to three years of expression uh, from the Atranidas uh, trials uh, with a durable expression of factor nine. Um, where the challenges have been, uh, have been primarily with hemophilia A, where although we saw, we saw very good expression in the early six months to one year timeframe, 
there seems to be this year-on-year -year decline over time, which I think is disappointing on a number of fronts because you, you really go into gene therapy thinking this is a one-time treatment. You want to have a durable response for the rest of your lifespan. And if you see declines year-on-year -year and patients increasingly having to revert back to prophylactic therapy, um, this takes some of the shine off the, the, this, this new therapy. And uh, we actually had an update from uh, one of the other trials at the meeting uh, where uh, with a different vector, we were also seeing this same phenomenon in hemophilia A where good expression early on, clearly in the normal or even supernormal levels, but after you know three to five years, seeing year-on-year -year declines uh, over time. So th this tells us that there's still more work to be done. Um, I, I think I would be the first person to say this is version 1.0 of gene therapy for hemophilia. I, I have seen what it can achieve as far as really delivering um, good enough expression to achieve zero bleeds for a patient for a, a considerable amount of time. Uh, but I think what Radic insinuated at the beginning was Patients want to embrace a therapy where the risk benefit, um, you know, meets all all the bars that we're looking for. And what that means is, if you're going to embrace a single treatment with long-lasting risk over over your lifespan, of of which you know there could be some uncertainty about what risks they're actually embracing, then you're really demanding an excellent outcome to balance that risk. And I think if you're going to embrace a treatment that potentially has implications over your lifespan, then you want to make sure that you're getting a benefit from that treatment over the lifespan as well. And so I think we've had glimpses from this meeting that uh, this platform of therapy can achieve it, but there's enough um, challenges remaining that we need continued innovation. We probably need new vectors. We probably need new transgenes. We need to maybe uh, think about different forms of immunomodulation. We maybe even need to think about different targets for how we're expressing these proteins. Uh, maybe the hepatocyte is not the best target for all um, you know, proteins that we're trying to express by this uh, mechanism. So I'm excited for the future because we've seen what we can do. And now we can build on that and we can hopefully provide continued innovation to take us where we really need to be for all patients. And it's so exciting to hear you use the phrase functional cure for haemophilia B as a possibility. It's so wonderful to talk to you both about these developments and all the data that's been presented. Thank you both so much, Professor Stephen Pipe and Dr. Radek Kazmarek for, for those insights. It's really been very, very helpful indeed. And thank you to the audience for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday and other bonus episodes like this one. So until next time, thank you so much to my guests. Thank you to the audience. Stephen and Radek, over to you. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me.